You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, books, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. This conversation is with Jonah Zimeles, owner of Words in Maplewood, New Jersey. Jonah and his store have a special mission to create a space for special needs kids and adults. It's a great story and one I'm excited to share. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get shows and help us spread the word about the show and the bookstores and books we feature. Thanks for listening. Jonah, thanks for being here today. What's the Words origin story? Oh, gosh. So I think the best way to tell you about the Words origin story is to tell you a little bit about my personal story. I'll give you the short answer first, but I, I, I think if you learn a little bit more about my wife background, my wife's background, you'll understand a little bit better. But we've been open nine years. It was my wife's idea to open the bookstore when our local bookstore in town was closing. What was that one called? It was called Goldfinch. Okay. We have two main missions, and one of our missions, I think, is is fairly common for an independent bookstore. The other one's a little bit unusual. By way of background, my wife and I both met shortly after uh, we went to different law schools. We met shortly after law school, and I went and practiced. First, I guess I was a law clerk for an appellate court, a federal appellate court judge in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. And the judge was a was just a wonderful mentor, and he inculcated into all of his clerks the importance of community involvement and char- you know charitable involvement and community in- involvement, as well as concentration on family and and career. And I left the clerkship and went to work for big law firms in in New York City, and did that for about 12 years. And then um, I'd had two children by that time. And what I was finding, I remember the words of of what Judge Rosen had said to us. And I found that between having a busy career and raising kids, it really left very little time for, you know, community activities or for trying to give back. And that was frustrating to me. I was approaching 40 at the time. My wife was an assistant U.S. attorney um, in the Southern District of New York. She worked for the government. And it was time for her to leave and, and consider a private career. So we did, in essence, and you know, call it a job switch, but it was really an income switch. She went to work for a um, big consulting firm doing forensic and advisory services and anti-money laundering work. And I went to work for a big national not-for-profit which I was very happy doing and did that for about three and a half years. But what happened while I was there was that our uh, son, who was our second child, we have a a daughter uh, who was 28 and a son who was 22, was diagnosed with autism. And it quickly became apparent that the needs that we had for him and for running his home program were so large that I would need to you know, that one of us would need to quit. My wife, or, or, you know, thought, you know, as a mom, she was interested in in possibly quitting, but her career had taken off and she was the primary uh, breadwinner at that point. So I said, no, I'll quit and stay home. And I became a stay-at-home father for six years. When was that? So that was in 2000. Okay. 
roughly in more or less in 2000. So from 2000 to 2006, I was a stay-at-home father, pretty much staying literally at home, working with my son and running. People who don't have a, a child with disabilities, specifically autism, have no idea sure. the the amount of therapies and time that's required. You know, he still requires 24-7 care. So I, after six years, I pretty much had that set up and he was, and we were starting to get the school situations well set up for him. When my wife decided to leave her firm and start her own company, I helped her with, fortunately, um, this was in 2006, you know, the economy was doing well and I helped her get financing by evaluating well Bill she she got the financing but I helped her evaluate proposals and she said gee you're really good at this did you ever think of going to business school and the light bulb kind of went off to me because one of the things I thought about was law teaching and I had law teaching job offers but given my son's situation there are occasionally just emergencies and I you know my wife travels a lot of business and I just had to be available and when you're the professor you can't just cut out right so I said to myself well you know you can't be the professor but Students can miss classes occasionally. You know, it's not encouraged, but students miss a class here and there. It's fine. So I went home kind of like the same night that I believe that she suggested this. You know, we were, we'd been in a meeting. I, I, th- I thought about it. And within a couple of weeks, I took the GMAT and did pretty well. And within a few months, was enrolled full-time at Columbia Business School. And that was really, as I like to say, other than meeting and marrying my wife, the decision to go back to business school at age 49 was turned out to be one of the best things I ever did. It's a very interesting, very interesting story. So you, you went back to school in your late 40s. Yeah, I was really, I was 49 turning 50. Wow. And all of the other students, well, they ranged in age probably from 25 to 35, but most of them were probably 27, 28. Yeah. And it was just a phenomenal experience. They're from all over the world. And I took all kinds of courses. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, but I knew that I wanted to work in the autism space. I had significant non-for-profit consulting experience. I thought, gee, maybe I'll consult to some of the major autism organizations. And in fact, one of the reasons I chose Columbia was that I knew that the women who ran something called the Nonprofit Board Leadership Program uh, that they had there had close ties to Autism Speaks, which was the major autism organization. And in fact, while I was there, I did pro bono consulting to Autism Speaks um, from the business school to their board. That seemed like a a direction that I might want to go. I was also thinking of various finance possibilities for helping autism projects. Mm -hmm. So I then graduated in June 2008, took the summer to kind of take care of things at home because things had gotten pretty backed up while I was spending full time. When around Labor Day, the economy was starting to tank and we live, we're a small town, but many of the people who live in our town commute to New York. It's only a half hour train ride. And the economy in our town and all around and the country in general was really suffering. And our little independent bookstore, my wife was working with her son who was then 12 and the independent bookstore had a sign that was closing. And my wife, had this idea that what I should do is we should start a vocational school for people with autism because we saw that there were virtually no adult services. I wasn't really sure I wanted to do that. But when she came home and saw the bookstore was closing, she said, I've got a great idea. We should buy the bookstore and you should run it and run a vocational training program for people with autism in the store. You can marry both things together. Married them, yeah. And I said, well, that's, you know, great, except I know very little. I know a lot about autism, but I know very little about vocational training, and I know nothing about retail in the book industry. And she said, well, I think you can figure it out. 
So in the meantime, when I was thinking about it, I was very inspired by Barack Obama's campaign for presidency. I mm-hmm. had been a big fan of his and a supporter since his speech to the Democratic Convention and thought a lot about what he was doing and saying about we needed to get the country back together again. And we felt that, fortunately, my wife's business, um, you know, anti-money laundering, unfortunately for all of us, does uh, kind of booms both when the economy is doing well and when it's not doing well, anti-money laundering and fraud and abuse. Yeah. So her business was kind of recession-proof. So given that we had a, you know, some cash and pretty steady income, we felt like we had a real obligation to our community to try to help out. So that's the second mission, which is to try to help our town, Maplewood, New Jersey, and the neighboring communities, and to try to help bolster uh, the downtown and the retail environment in town. So I said to her, I'll tell you what, I'll do it. But they were a very small store, Goldfinch. There were, there were stores for rent signs up and down. This, the main street. We have a main street in town. I said, if we move to the biggest space in town and we give a real boost to the town, and that's something I would do. So we quickly bought the store with really no preparation because the uh, other owner wanted to be out by November 1st. So it was less than two months from the conception of the idea to the store purchase. And then we moved, not coincidentally, on President Obama's initial inauguration day into our big new space on Maple Avenue, the main street. And that was, uh, and that's how the store opened. Tell me about the town you're in, for those that may not know. Sure. So we are an incredibly diverse town. We have about 25,000 people. We also have a sister town, South Orange, that we share a school that's a little smaller than we are, that we share a school district with. And Maplewood's really known for its, I'm going to say tolerance, there's got to be a better word for it, kind of open-mindedness and accepting other people and diversity. When we first moved there from Brooklyn, which is where everyone pretty much moves to from either Brooklyn or or in the old days, the Upper West Side, to Maplewood, it was surprising to find, and this was in 1990, Obviously, this was way before gay marriage. Many, many gay and lesbian couples that had children in the community. Mm-hmm. So we are consistently listed as one of the most friendly LGBTQ communities in the country. Interesting. We also have a very large African-American population. I believe that our school system is close close to half African-American. And we obviously have people in finance and Wall Street because we're close by lawyers. But we also have a lot of people in the arts, people who work on Broadway, tons of people in publishing the media, et cetera. So it's a very interesting, eclectic, open-minded community. Um, so you, you mentioned the two missions, and, and, and one of those missions was the focus on special needs children and adults in particular. Yep. Was the choice to focus on that a function of the lack of available resources for special needs kids and adults? Is that was it? Is it as simple as that, or, or uh, were you trying to create something, carve out perhaps something better or more optimal? Yeah, no, I think it was from the lack of choices. Our son was 12 when we bought the bookstore, and we saw, you know, he had kids with special needs, at least in New Jersey, go to school until they're 21. So we knew we had a bunch of years, but we saw that there were very few opportunities. Yeah. And in particular, un- unemployment's very, um, let's say that, you know, I've seen statistics like 85% unemployment and things like that. How are books for special needs kids different? Are there a couple of descriptors or characteristics that they have that regular books? I hate to use the word regular. It sounds kind of yeah, awful. No, I hear but... you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We don't really specialize, and, and I'm happy to talk about what we do do. We have, we have obviously tons of patrons, and I can 
get into that, but we don't specialize in books for special needs kids. Okay. Um, We do specialize in books for family members of people with special needs and teachers of people with special needs. Uh, We find that our kids with autism is a very broad spectrum. My son's fairly severely impacted, um, but there are people much worse or higher. He tends to read on about a first grade level and first, you know, second grade books for typical first and second graders. There are obviously people, you know, with autism who write books and they're quite literate. Sure. So, but but one of the main lessons, I mean, just that it taught me was to try to avoid, you know, kind of age labeling books and kids. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I've been kind of insistent, resistant to. I don't like saying, gee, this book is really for a nine-year-old because there are some people like my son who may be 22 who, you know, would aspire to read like a typical nine-year-old. And then there are people who are six who are really advanced who can read like a typical nine-year-old. It's interesting. Yeah, the world the world that I live in is is the world that you just mentioned, which is like, you know, what's age appropriate and what's not. Right. How'd you come up with the name? Yeah, so that's a really nice story. So it, there I was with, you know, late September, we're going to open up the bookstore. And as I pointed out, we, you know, we were kind of scurrying around. And even though I had taken, you know, marketing classes and in business school, I really was was obviously not an expert in marketing or in, in branding and things like that. So my wife's company, as I said, she had started her own company, used a fairly major advertising agency in the city called Barker. I think it was then called Barker DCP. And John Barker, who ran the agency, said to my uh, wife, gee, you know, send your husband in and I'm happy to chat with him. Uh, I got dressed up and went in to um, put on kind of my lawyer outfit and went into Soho. And first thing I saw was that the people who work in advertising agencies in Soho don't dress don't up like suits. lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could have worn my bookstore outfit. And uh, while I'm in, you know, they said, gee, uh, John, I'll be with you in a minute. And I'm looking up there and I see they have these mock-ups, you know, kind of on the board of the projects they're working on. And, and one was, I think, Apple. One was my wife's company. Another was another one, big one, maybe Bloomberg. And then the fourth one says Maplewood Bookstore. So I'm kind of scratching my head and thinking, what the heck is this about? And we sit down in the conference room. I'm in the conference room and about, you know, John walks in with like four other people. And it turns out that they have had an entire team working on options for us and gave us a list of, I believe, 30 names. Wow. Including words. And the reason why words appeal to us is because all the time with, uh, or very frequently with people with autism, they say to them, use your words, because a lot of uh, people with autism have very limited language. And some have no language at all, and they're constantly encouraging them to use their words. And we thought that that really spoke to our autism mission, as well as obviously the you know the book uh, mission. That's great. And we also did all our branding. Um, we have some incredible stripes and design. And yeah, I know. I noticed very that. Striking, and that was all done by this agency pro bono. So it was really a fantastic thing. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say that, that it must have cost a fortune, but you just said it was pro bono. That's fantastic. All for free. Yep. So. That being said, you're probably one of the few owners that I've talked to that have, you know, both a JD and an MBA and have had, you know, various careers in other spaces. How would you grade yourself? How's business going? Oh, well, business has gone very well. You know, how would I grade myself? I don't know. A minus, B plus. The the way that I would um, 
describe what happened was, so as I said, we had to buy this bookstore very quickly, and notwithstanding the fact that times were rough, um, my wife had had offices in for business in London and New York and Washington, Miami, and she said this was, I did the lease negotiations, she said this was the toughest she'd ever seen. The landlord, who I'm now pretty friendly with, um, but insisted on pretty high rent and some tough terms that fortunately we were able to eventually negotiate and agree upon. I knew kind of what our sales were from the other store, and I knew it would improve a little bit with a better and bigger location. But I then went to the Paz and Associates booksellers. Oh, yeah, Mark... Mark Hoffman? Mark Hoffman, yeah. right, and Donna Paz. They run a kind of a week-long program for aspiring people who are thinking about buying a bookstore or new mm-hmm. bookstore owners. And I, I thought it was a great experience, by the way, and I would really recommend it for anybody who is thinking about going in, into this. But we went in there, and I told them about our um, what our rent was and told them what our sales were. And we were paying about twice as much in rent as what they thought we could possibly afford. Yeah. And they said, well, gee, you better go back and renegotiate your lease. Having gone through a pretty extensive negotiation just to get the lease, that really didn't appeal to me. So I said to myself, you know, I'm going to try a different plan. We're going to double our sales instead. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the lease will be, well, lease goes up a little more, but will eventually be at the right percentage. And um, sure enough, over nine years, I think we have more than quadrupled the sales from Goldfinch. And we had a good first year, but our annual sales since that first year have gone up on average 12% a year for every year since we opened. And this year, we're on track at, uh, we're about 14, up 14%. It's fantastic. And I know you can't possibly answer this next question, you know, without getting into various particulars and going in depth. But you said you you your goal was to double to basically make the rent feasible. What are some of the things that you did to achieve that? Yeah, I would say, I mean, a host of things. We had a fantastic staff. One of the reasons we bought Goldfinch, um, we could, you know, it could have gone under and we could have just started a new store and saved a little bit of money. But we really wanted to inherit, particularly given my lack of knowledge, given my management philosophy, I really wanted to have an experienced staff that would, you know, certainly tell me what to do as much as I told them what to do. Um, we had people who'd worked for years and uh, one of them just left a couple of weeks ago, but we have several who've stayed with us, you know, nine years and are still staying with us. Mm-hmm. And um, they had lots of, you know, ideas to to try out. And so I have to give them a lot of the credit for it. We also did everything possible to embed ourselves in our community. We give donations to, uh, I'd say, hundreds of local charities. I was amazed. I had no idea there were hundreds of local charities, uh, you know, in just a little small town. Sure. Um, or, or nonprofits, I should say. When I say charities, I mean things like the JB, girls' JB lacrosse team. We sponsor a softball team that I really love doing and things like that. So we got to be known quickly in the community. I also paid more attention to the book reps than the prior owner did. My lack of knowledge about book industry and not being as nearly as much of an expert in books as many of my colleagues is sometimes kind of a hidden advantage because I had much fewer preconceived notions about what to buy. Yeah, and was much more open to listening to suggestions from publisher reps. Fluid, uh, and I, to me, that's been a great recipe for success. Some, you know, for some people, it, it that doesn't work out well. But I've 
I, I found they were very helpful. We also found almost by mistake that events had been a huge part of our growth and our branding. What happened was, as I said, we had this, we have a pretty you know, a decent-sized store. It's about 2,300 square feet on the main floor. But what I knew was there was also a very big basement space, about 1,600, 1,700 square feet, um, as well as a little office space downstairs. And I knew that because it used to be a furniture store, which had gone out of business. They used to carry excess furniture down there, and I would go down there and look at it. And I wanted to run our vocational training program out of the basement space. That's why we we got it, um, and then we decided, well, gee, now that we have this, it's a great dedicated event space in the evenings, and you know, we run over 100, for years now, we've been running over 100 events a year out of the basement, and I think that some of the big names that we were been able to attract to our store have really boosted our reputation in the community. Sure. I recently, I saw that you recently had Mark Bittman there for, with his new book. Yeah, he was great. He's been back. He came back. He said he hates going to bookstores, but he likes coming to us, which we were really flattered by. And um, I mean, he, not that he hates, I'm sorry. He, he, as a shopper, he may like going to bookstores, but he just doesn't like making the, the, those kind of presentations. Sure, sure. I noticed that you're one of the few stores that I've talked to that, that puts up video of the events you put on. What was your goal for doing that? And, and has it been successful? You know, that's interesting. We put up clips of our videos. We, we put up some. We don't generally put up. I know, again, you've had some incredible people in your series. You're just giants of the industry, and I'm kind of flattered just to be interviewed when you have people like Mitchell Kaplan and Steve Burku, who are just terrific mentors to me and great. Um, Mitchell Kaplan, I know, and you talked about it in your podcast with him, streams the events from his store. Yeah. Uh, we don't do that. We don't put up the whole... I have kind of conflicting feelings about that practice, um, but we do want to show clips to give people an idea, and we occasionally put up the entire video. What are you conflict? What's the crux of the issue for you? Well, I'm just like, well, for me, the question is, you know, will it discourage people from coming if they can watch it on YouTube? Right, right. You know, we've done pretty well with getting attendance. We want to keep it that way, and we're always looking to improve. And it's not sure. Now, I understand. I know what Mitchell's philosophy in it. And again, you know, the guy is you know, just a superstar in our industry. And I and appreciate why he does it. And it seems to work well for him. It's also technologically a bit challenging for us. I, I find running a small business with a small staff, you know, doing these kind of things is, um, you know, he's got a much bigger operation than we have. Totally. No, I understand. But what what you guys are doing, and again, in my experience with this project, you, you're, you're, you seem to me to be at least quite a bit ahead of the curve in terms of oh, lever- in terms of leveraging technology or approaching or being open to including a technological component to bridge online and offline offline worlds. Thank you. Yeah, we have a uh, we have a new website coming out pretty soon, so stay posted. Great. Is there a nagging pain point in the business that you'd like to solve? And again, I'm asking you, someone who is an outsider to the industry, so to speak. So maybe you have some, you don't have any entrenched interests and you kind of just can look at it from a more macro 30,000 foot view. Is there anything that you... Yeah, there are a number of things. It's interesting you say that. Um, Talk about technology. I feel as if while we like our 
POS system and our and the and the company that runs it, I, I feel like we could harness and use technology much better than we do. Our communications, I'm, I'm blanking right now on the name of the project. The American Booksellers Association is engaged in a, a project um, that would copy a model from England where they have all of the uh, invoices from publishers kind of centrally posted and you can pay centrally. Mm. Shoot, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name of it, but I, I think that would be a great advance for us if we were able to adopt something like that. Because what I find, my first observation in the industry is, to me, you know, I'm used to as a lawyer having to bill every six minutes of my time, and yeah. time is kind of money. Even if you have staff there, time that they're spending doing that is time they could be spending time on paperwork. Is time they could be spending with customers or or doing something else, or even just researching, learning more about the books that we're selling, et cetera. Right. So I believe that kind of our backroom operations, uh, and there's certainly bookstores that run their backroom operations much better than we do, um, but I feel in general it would be great if we could improve it. I think our sales team is, we do a pretty good job on the sales floor, but I wish we could run the business a, a little bit more smoothly, and that's what I would say. I, th- I think that's probably true in most bookstores across the country. Yeah. A lot of a lot of small stores are expanding or either going bigger in terms of selling space uh, or even second, third locations. Is expansion on your radar? Is that something that you're thinking about? Yes, we are, in fact, imminently going to open up our second location in a place called Lifetown in Livingston, New Jersey. Great. Congratulations. Thank you, which again ties directly to our mission. I've been working on this project for about nine years. Um, we were actually the first donors to the project. It, we've raised, I believe, approximately $15 million, and it's a 53,000-square-foot facility that's going to serve as basically a, you know, a community center and a heart for the special needs community throughout our area. It, comes, it runs with an organization called the Friendship Circle, and we locally have 800 teen volunteers who work every year at the Friendship Circle and hundreds of special needs um, kids and, and adults that they help do activities with and serve. And this is going to be a huge kind of village and hub. We're going to bring in, and part of the goal is to bring the outside community. It's sort of called reverse inclusion, bringing the general community in the airspace as opposed to just bringing our folks out into the community large, which we also do. And we're going to have a small um, store there. That's really fantastic. You know, my wife is a genetic counselor and she works with special needs oh. kids all the time. And wow. the, this kind of a project that I'm going to tell her about it. It's really cool that you're so homed in on this mission. You have a personal reason, obviously, but you're you're propagating this for the greater good. And it's really cool to see. Yeah, and we do. And, and it takes you again, This the, the mission takes you into all kinds of interesting areas. So, for example, we were very happy we've had Mike Lupic at our store a couple of times. Um, he writes oh, sports books for kids. Yeah, and yeah. and while his books aren't specifically designed at all for special needs kids, I mean, they, they, they're, they you know, general best-selling books. What he talks about is how well they resonate with what are called reluctant readers, kids, particularly boys who may not be reading at grade level or who, um, you know, face challenges. And again, what having a kid with autism teaches is that one size doesn't fit all. And I apply that in terms of our customers, in terms of the books that we stock, in terms of, um, our, you know, how our employees are treated and, you know, how we divide up assignments. We, we sort of, we try to individualize and customize all of those. 
What advice do you have for people that want to open a bookstore today? You know, I'm probably a little more reluctant about it than some of the other people you've interviewed who are gung-ho about it. I think it's great. We're fortunate that it was not necessary for us to be our primary, even though we are cash flow positive and making profit. We're, we're lucky that we have another. My wife has got, you know, we, we live on my wife's income. Right. So financially, I'd be cautious. The other things are, we were also lucky that we had sufficient capital to invest. Mm -hmm. And again, we didn't have to worry about cash flow too much because we could put cash into the business, even if we, you know, so, you know, we don't have any problem paying for books, you know, in September that are going to sell in December. But for the average person, that you know, entering this, it can be, this could be a big challenge. The second thing, and I've heard, again, one of your other people talking about the why and what you're entering into it for. While I, you know, certainly love books and bookstores, I'm not convinced that love of books and bookstores is by itself a great reason to own a bookstore. It might be a great, it might be a great reason to manage a bookstore or to be a salesperson in a bookstore, but I find that the ownership involves a lot of nitty-gritty math and financial work, which I actually happen to enjoy a lot. That doesn't bother me. In fact, you know, that's one of my favorite parts of, the, of, of owning the bookstore. But I don't think people should underestimate how much of that work's entailed. So if you have a business mind and you have the resources, but you also love books and want to serve your community, I think it's great. So I certainly wouldn't discourage people. But many of the people I encounter or want to open a bookstore really, in my opinion, should get a job working at a bookstore instead. They probably would make more money <laughs> and they would be more involved with the books and the customers and things they love. I don't spend time on the sale. I spend very little time on the sales floor myself. It, it That has to do with a lot of the projects that I'm involved with, like the one I just described, then on a few other boards. But, you know, a, a typical salesperson is going to have more opportunity to interact and talk about books with customers than a store owner is. Sure. Less stress, too, if uh, you just go the running the store route, managing the store route, as opposed to owning the store. Yeah, well, they're both. They're, every job is stressful. I mean, that can be pretty stressful, too. Does Amazon factor into what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so it's interesting because when when I opened the store, Barnes & Noble was considered the main competitor, mm -hmm. and we have two Barnes & Nobles pretty near us, about 10 minutes away. That never really bothered me too much. I, I see a lot of positives. I know it's popular in the industry to bash Barnes & Noble, but I see a lot of positives uh, from Barnes & Noble. They're not, you know, I think we offer different positives, but I felt like we could kind of coexist with them and that there were things that would be our strengths and things that would be their strengths. Amazon really troubles me and that, you know, I could, as unfortunate people know, I could go on for hours talking about them. But I was not an antitrust lawyer, but their basic philosophy of, you know, presenting books as lost leaders or engaging in what might be termed predatory pricing or whatever, selling below cost, is really kind of troubling. I am very concerned about them, not so much as a bookstore owner, but more as a special needs parent and as a citizen, because I value our town and community so much. And it's so important for people with autism who don't have huge friendship networks to be able to go out into the community, interact with real people. It's very hard for them to do, and it's for many of them, and it's very important. And I'm concerned that 
you know, if, if, if there's a real demise in retail, et cetera, that'll be almost impossible for them. I was also very disturbed with a problem that they had a few years ago with our friends at the um, Shed Book Group about what they were doing with some of, you know, with some of their titles. I think that Amazon is really a pretty serious threat to the country and, and certainly not a positive for us. We kind of feel like we can beat them in some ways at their own game that we can get books, um, maybe not cheaper than they, you know, certainly not cheaper than they sell them, but, you know, at a competitive price compared with them and we can get them as fast as Amazon can. So locally, you know, it's not a huge problem. Yeah, I think that to echo your point, the local communities, the local, you know, the Maplewoods of the of the country around, you know, in, in every city and state, they basically just need to band together. The property tax payers need to say we want places like yours in our community. And and I see that happening from everybody that I've talked to so far and for all the ones that haven't even been released yet. It's part of your success is actually most of your success is largely attributable to the community members wanting, willing your your, your store to exist. And that's, that just, it needs to get stronger. And that's kind of the impetus for this podcast too, is to, I want my, my sons to have bookstores to go to and to frequent and to walk around when they get older. I don't want the neighborhood to be what I think it, where I think it's going. So. Yeah. And that's absolutely the primary reason for our success. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. And I hope it, I hope it continues. And, and, and a lot of that is um, also attributable to the mission that you have, which is so unique and so, so special. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Our mission, again, it, it kind of informs all kinds of other practices, but it's not that central on a day-to-day basis other than the fact that we have like 300 autism titles in our store and we have all kinds of meetings going on about autism and we have people wandering in, individuals and families with autism members in our store every day. It, it doesn't, we don't have a huge sign like, you know, on our store window. We, uh, I'm, sure, um, I'm sure Fire and Fury is still the primary book or was the primary book that was moving for a while. Yeah, things like that, correct, and, and uh, you know, et cetera. And people don't, and, and the average, I mean, many, I, I, I'm guessing at least half our customers have no idea about our autism mission. Yeah, no, but it's there's this trend in, like, the broader business world where companies have social missions, even if the social missions are ancillary to their primary business objective. Um, so just the fact right. that you have this carve-out and this focus on it is, is in, almost, in a way, good enough because, like you said, it's expanded you into other areas and it's led to different things, and, um, you know, it's just, a, it's, like its own little garden that you're tending to so yeah social enterprise was my you know concentration business school and and that and we are a social enterprise um i'm gonna finish up with a lightning round um sure. you've, you've listened to the show so you know kind of how it'll go you, you can you, they can be yes or no answers or if you want to extrapolate feel free a lot of the questions are recycled in the sense that i'm curious uh, every individual has a different answer every locality every every city has a different sort of customer and so i just like to hear like and, and listeners especially like to know what sells in various parts of the country so what's been selling really well lately oh um in general, our nonfiction books are strong. Our kids' books, it's incredible. We had um, Mac Barnett and John Klaus to our store fairly recently. Our, our kids' oh, books sales just, they're fabulous. And their kids' books grow. Quan Alexander was there store recently. The, the, our kids' books throughout most of the younger ages have been growing tremendously. So I would say that's a major area of growth. Do the illustrators get their due? Like John Classen's books are fantastic, but the illustrator, I don't, I think he illustrates his own books, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure. He does but both. Yeah. He does both. He, yeah. He, yeah. Correct. Yep. Because um, the illustrations are for the parent who's reading them. The illustrations are, are, are so much of the book too. Yeah. 
yeah, the people in this industry are obviously just incredibly talented. Yeah. Uh, what does your business look like in five years? Again, continued growth. We are looping at least one other location. We may open other locations. We'll see how, how this one goes. But we continue to, you know, to expand. What do you know now that you wished you knew at the beginning of this journey? One of the things that surprised me a little bit was in school and in my own reading, I often don't read what's just, you know, on the front list and what's currently out. I would read, you know, not just classics, but good books that came out a couple of years ago. I mean, for example, one of the books I'm reading now, I didn't get to read yet is um, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run that I really want to read when it came out. I just didn't get a chance. And it, 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 I never really approach books as, gee, I need to have what's just hot off the presses. Um, you know, something that came out two years ago could be, you know, there are so many books coming out would be a great interest to me. And I, but what I didn't really realize is a, a lot of our business is really drawn, drawn to books that are fresh and hot off the presses. What are you reading at the moment? Um, well, story tomorrow, I'm, I'm reading something called Rescue Board, the untold story of America's efforts to save the Jews of Europe by Rebecca Erbelding. I'm, I'm, as I said, reading Port Run and starting tomorrow, I'm going to, I'm very excited to get an arc for a book, um, by Ibtihaj Muhammad. I believe it's called Proud. Um, it's Proud or Pride. I think it's Proud, which is, um, she is an Olympic medalist, first, uh, U.S. Olympic medalist to wear hijab, uh, first Muslim, I uh, believe first Muslim um, Olympic medalist. And this is her story. And she uh, lives and went to high school in Maplewood. And we're going to be um, hosting an event with her. We're, I'm very excited about it and looking forward to reading it. How do you decide what to read? What are, your, what are some of your filters? Um, I have to say, doing running 100 books a year, I... I'm sorry, running 100 events a year, I try to read as many of the books of people who are coming. So if I know that there's somebody who I think who is coming or I think we're going to get to um, to come, then then I'm likely to read them. I read primarily nonfiction myself, but our staff, you know, they're big on, you know, fiction books. Yeah, Proud, I just looked it up. Proud, okay, great. Are there any writers you'd like to mention that you think should be getting more attention? Well, we love, you know, we have a lot of local authors, Pam, you know, in the nonfiction era, Pamela Ahrens, um, Ruth Virgins is, you know, a great writer. I'd love to see her get a bit of a boost. I mean, there are people, I happen to be a huge fan of Daniel Pink's and love his books, but mm-hmm. he's, he's done pretty well. So I yeah. don't think he fits into the category you're mentioning, right. but I, I love his work. A um, couple more. What book have you recommended the most over the years to people? Oh, um, again, a drive by Dan Pink. I know I'm a big proponent of his uh, a book called Strategic Intuition by William Duggan, who was one of my Columbia Business School professors. I was crazy about, so I, I'm often, no matter what people come in and ask about, I, I'm often, you know, pushing those books. I loved um, Gorbachev by William Taubman, the Norton book. He was one of my professors who also came to the store. Who, you know, it's also a fabulous book. Finally, what's your favorite meal? My favorite meal. Well, my favorite food is my wife's home-baked apple pie. It's incredible. I like frequent when I go out. I, I, I cook a fair amount. You know, when I, uh, I'm about to break open Mark Whitman's grilling book uh, this, this weekend, 
but I love there's a uh, there are a couple of restaurants in town. Arturo's has a great portobello and uh, mozzarella sandwich that I love. I like pastrami on rice sandwiches. I'm a salad eater. Jonah, thank you so much. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, we really need this in the uh, independent bookstore community. You've been listening to Book Stories. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Book Stories is an alternate Thursdays production. Special thanks to Savannah Tate for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening.